to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scripture reading is Romans 8, 1 through 4. You may find the scripture on page 944 in the Blue Pew Bible. Page 944, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon what we do here. O Lord, you have given this word by your Holy Spirit. You have preserved this word for us by your sovereign providence. And Lord, you have brought us together that we might hear your word. We acknowledge that apart from your spirit, the Spirit who gave this word, that we will not understand it. We particularly will not take it to heart, will not be renewed by it, will not believe you afresh because of it, will not live it out in our lives. O Lord, use your word. Bless us, O Lord. We thank you that it is your desire to glorify your name by blessing your people in your word. We know you will glorify your name. Your promises are great, Lord, to do good to your people. And so we rest in you that you do good to us even now. For we ask it because we belong to Jesus Christ by your grace. Amen. I think one of the most difficult things in the Christian life is maintaining a sense of the newness of our life in Christ. When you fight against sin for many years, you fight in relationship, perhaps, in marriage relationship, family relationships. You struggle with, perhaps, a disease for a long time. Uh, You struggle through different versions of the Christian life, different forms of teaching. And after so many years, sometimes for us, that sense of waking up in the morning and just being feeling like dynamite, you know, that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus and you burst into the day full of vigor and eagerness because 
you believe in the greatness of the work of Jesus Christ that day. I dare say for us, that's a hard, hard thing to do. And many days, that's not the mark of our lives. And much of the scripture is, much of the New Testament, the letters of Paul are directed to that end. To believe these things, to know these things, to be thrilled over these uh, truths of the gospel. And there's always this focus on the person of Christ and what he has accomplished and what is ours in Christ. And so, again, this morning, we're going to be focusing on this glorious section in Romans chapter 8 to deal with some of these matters of the newness of this life in Christ Jesus. Uh, We have already talked about there being no condemnation. This was last week's uh, study. And today we're going to focus more on verses 2 through 4. And the title, of course, today is Things Can Never Be the Same. And that's that's the fact. That's the fact of this passage. Things can never be the same for us again. It's like after 9-11. You think things could never be the same after that. And they haven't been. Every time I go to the airport, (laughs) no, it's not like it used to be. I get checked out as though I might destroy this plane. Every one of us does. Things have not been the same since. When you read what people originally said about the possibility of personal computers, and even some of the people in the business said, I can't ever see a need for a personal computer in everybody's home. Really was said, you know, with great insight and (laughs) prediction. But since the computer's been introduced, and then in the 90s, I got on the Internet for the first time. Things will never be the same. And then yesterday, or two days ago, my son was showing me how I can see any building in the world through Google Earth. Any building, any street, any place on Earth. And you can carry it around like this. How can that be? Things will never be the same. Well, there's that sense here in this passage, things will never be the same because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And my prayer for you and for me is that we can have that sense every single day. That's the struggle. We won't be perfect at it, but that we'll have something of that sense every day, no matter how long we've struggled in relationship or in regard to sin, things will never be the same. They can't be the same. Because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Well, we're going to look at the foundation of the transformation that's occurred. And that is the work of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see the agent of this transformation, which is the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see the standard by which we have this new, this transformation. And that's the law of God. Okay? So the foundation of this transformation is Christ's work. And the agent that brings it about is the Spirit. But he has a standard to which he is conforming us, and that is the law of God. Well, we saw this last week in verse uh, 3. God has done, notice this is the Father, God the Father acting on our behalf. He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We've seen in Romans 7 how unassisted humanity does not do well with the law. It's like a tar baby that just keeps 
hanging us up. It's like quicksand that sucks us under. Because the law has such a glorious, beautiful standard of love, we just wither before it. It just exposes how opposed to love we are. And particularly, the law can't change us. It has no power to transform us. And so God does what the law, nothing wrong with the law, but it's weakened by the flesh. It could not do. And what did he do? By sending his son. There's a sense here of a divine invasion from the outside into the human realm. And of course, there's also this close identification with the uh, human condition, as he says, he sent his own son in the likeness of human flesh, of sinful flesh. And there couldn't be a, a, a more deep uh, humiliation, uh, the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, it's carefully constructed, this phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that he participated fully In the old age of the flesh, that is, his body was not immune to all the powers of the old age in which he entered. The weakness, the temptation, the dishonor, the frailty, the sickness, and death itself. All of these things Christ felt and suffered in his own person while he personally remained sinless, obedient even unto death. Paul says in Philippians 2. So he didn't share in the sin of the human race, but he shared completely in that condition of the old humanity. One translation has it this way, the same human nature as any sinner. Okay? Not that he was a sinner, but he had that same human nature as any sinner. So God's not distancing himself from sin. He sent him in a manner that brought him into the closest relationship to sinful humanity that was possible without becoming sinful himself. Fully human, yet without sin. And so we, we can't fudge on any of these, either one of these things. There's no sense in which he wasn't human, but no sense in which he was sinful. And so, rather than distancing himself, through his own son, God became vulnerable to the onslaught of sin, lovingly bearing the cost that was exacted by that conflict. He, he, he became vulnerable to the onslaught of sin. The God that made us, he sent his own son into our human situation. And so what had to happen is someone coming from the outside, help coming from outside our human situation. And so God sent the Son. God sent the Son. And through the Son, He condemned sin in the flesh. And we talked about this last week, that this doesn't simply mean, though it does include it, that He condemned sin so that the guilt of sin is dealt with. But He condemned sin and it, and it, it... includes that he executed sin. He destroyed sin's power. A final, altogether decisive dealing with sin, effectively breaking sin's power. Because 
the very next phrase, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the, the point, as we'll get to that, is that the law now can be kept by us through the Spirit. And the fact that verse 2 says, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death because God condemns sin. So that condemnation must have been effective in setting us free, must have been part of that setting us free from this pattern of sin and death. You think of a, a, a lead ship of a naval armada, okay? And this ship is the center of strength and communication and coordination for all the other ships that are dependent on it, and they play off of it. Let's say the ship is called Gibraltar for that reason. And then you hear the awful uh, communication back to home base. Gibraltar is down. And the devastation that Gibraltar, the, the, the ship that can't go down, it was invincible. There's no way it could have been destroyed. But now it's down and everything's changed. Well, we could say that as a result of Christ's death, The dragon is down. Satan is down. The judge of this world, the the God of this world, is about to be cast out, Jesus says in John 12, 31. Sin is unseated from its place of power. The dragon is down. Sin is down. Satan is down. That's an announcement for our side, right? And that's what this passage is saying. Sin has been condemned in the flesh. And the good news for anybody sitting here, no matter who you are, is this accomplishment of breaking the back of sin. And this means breaking the back of sinful habits in people's lives and addictions in people's lives and tendencies in people's lives and desires in people's lives and ways of thinking that people have always lived. Those things have been condemned in Christ. And as you trust in Christ, you can be set free progressively by these things. It is a message of new freedom in Christ. Because as he says, the, this law or power of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God sent his son into this situation and he condemned sin. He destroyed, he executed sin in the flesh. The dragon is down. Now, the agent of transformation is the Spirit. The foundation of this is the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. But the agent that brings this about, you might say, applies this work of Christ to our lives, is the Holy Spirit. He is the train that brings the grace of Christ to us and brings the transforming transforming work of Christ to us. And... It says here, and we'll look at both verse 2 and verse 4 because they both talk about the Spirit. But it says the law of the Spirit of life. And this should be taken in the sense of the principle or the force or the ruling uh, function of the Spirit, the constraining authority of the Spirit, the control and rule of the Spirit has set you free from the control or the rule or the force of sin and death. And so this one has said, the law of the Spirit is nothing other than the Spirit in His ruling function in the sphere of Christ, united to Christ, 
the, the Spirit ruling and bringing us out of that condition of sin and death. He actually claims your bodily existence for Himself, the Spirit does. He, he claims your life and says, you and all that you are, your whole bodily existence, I claim from me. You're going to be ruled by me and my grace and love and power no longer by that enemy that was destroying you. What a gracious thing that he would take us and set us free and own us. And this, of course, is the exercise of Christ's lordship at the right hand of God. After he died and was raised from the grave, the Lord Jesus was exalted at the right hand of the Father. And it says that he poured out his spirit upon his people. And his spirit is poured out from Christ in such a way that Christ can be called, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the life-giving spirit. He's called by the Spirit's name because they work so closely. He's such, a, he's such a manifestation of the rule of Christ in our lives. And so Christ rules you and rules me in His Lordship, in His absolute Lordship over all things. He sends His Spirit and his, the Spirit sets us free. And so Christ's Lordship is exercised through uh, the Spirit. He radically cuts us off from our old sin-dominated life and existence. And He sets us free so that we have a new controlling force in our life. It is no longer sin. That is not the controlling force in your life. It is the mighty Holy Spirit of God. And that is good news. Doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that we don't have failures. Doesn't mean that we're going to have to, not going to have to grow the whole of our lives. But it means that the fundamental definition of who I am is this. I have been set free from that law, that principle, that control of sin that leads to death. So he rescues us from our own autonomy, you know, our self rule, our self uh, direction. He sets us free from self. And I love what Kaysman says here. He manifests uh, that Jesus Christ is the end of our own possibilities, which were very small and ended up in death. And it's the beginning of the divine, the wonderful divine possibilities. See, we were just, we were at the end of our rope with just human possibilities. And the law kept showing how poor we were and how terrible our prospects were. But now we have divine possibilities. It's a whole new thing. Things can never be the same because we are no longer in the realm of sin and death. We are in the realm of the spirit and of life. And so that absolute sovereignty of sin over us that was described in Romans 7 is done away with uh, so that Despite all that we would have wanted to do, we were lost in sin. And now other powers, as Ritterboss says, other powers must enter the field. Another besides me must join the battle if deliverance is to come. So this, there's really been a wonderful Calvary, hasn't there? Of the coming of Christ and then the entering of the Spirit into the field uh, to bring about change in our lives. But to believe that, to maintain a sense of the joy of that and the vigor of it, and for it to so encourage us that we are throwing ourselves into 
our daily struggle. That's, that's a difficult thing. These things are to be believed. These th- we are to trust Christ in His work. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But it shows the bankruptcy of those who seek their strength in the law itself. If you seek your strength in just rules, okay, just as long as I'm doing this and I'm not doing that, and that kind of describes the beginning and end of your life, that leads in death. The only possibility for continuing inward transformation is that we are, we are consciously always depending upon Jesus Christ and depending upon the work of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians uh, that if it is by the Spirit, if we are led by the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not follow the desires of the flesh. But it's only, only as we are walking in the power and the authority of the Spirit. So though we were under the power of sin, we were prisoners of war, so to speak. We were brought into slavery. Now we're in this redeeming sovereignty, as one has described it, a liberating dominion under the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. He truly has liberated us in verse 2. And then this is, so first, as we talk about the agent of the Spirit, that's the freedom of the Spirit. But then we, we see the way of the Spirit as well in verse 4. They walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit has set you free. He's the liberator. And then He leads us in a specific way. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, walking according to the Spirit has a lot of... Uh, it, it joins with many other things that we're told to walk in. First of all, the idea of walking is a common thing. It's, it wasn't common among the Greeks in terms of, of morality or ethics, but it was common in Jewish thinking that you walk a certain way. And so we walk according to this Spirit, but it's also... Uh, to walk in the love of God that is brought to our hearts by the Spirit. Earlier in Romans 5, we are told in verse 5 that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the Holy, this means that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts, makes us understand, makes us believe, makes us taste and see the love of God that, that that is given to us in Christ. And just a few verses later, he talks about this magnificent love of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then you see the connection. Here's this God who's given His Son, but the Holy Spirit is poured into your heart so that the love of God is poured into your heart. It literally says the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Spirit. And that's a beautiful image and it's part of walking in the Spirit, not just that we're trusting in His power, but we are believing the, we are receiving the, the love of God that the Spirit reveals to us. And that's a great part of our motivation that the Spirit brings to heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, I'm controlled, he says, I'm governed by the love of Christ. Well, that's the love that the Spirit reveals to him. It's the love of God poured out into our hearts that causes us to want to give ourselves to this God, to want to entrust ourselves to this God. 
So part of walking by the Spirit is to walk according to what the Spirit has revealed to us in Christ. It's interesting, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, when he prays that you will have strength. He says, according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, you think of strengthened with power, it must mean strengthened so that you can go out and obey God. Well, yeah, ultimately, but in this passage, strengthen with power in your inner being so that, he finally gets to it, so that you will know and understand the love of Christ. See, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that reveals to you the love of God in Christ. And so walking according to the Spirit has that Part of it is that, is that I'm receiving and trusting in the Spirit's revelation of the love of God in Christ. It also means that we'll walk by faith. A parallel passage is Paul in Galatians 2 saying, I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's parallel to walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit means... a a walk of expectation in God's power, a walk of confidence in what He will do in my life, a walk of trust in the goodness of God as He commands me in the Scripture. And so, for us, we must submit ourselves constantly to the Spirit. Do you actively do that as a, as a way of life? To say in the morning, oh, oh Lord, oh Holy Spirit, I want to walk by the Spirit and not by my flesh. I want to walk not in human weakness, but I want to walk in divine power today. And Lord, I acknowledge afresh, apart from you, I can do nothing. It's the same message of Christ in, in, in John 15, which we're studying on Wednesday mornings and Wednesday evening, that we must abide in Christ, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. But believe in Christ's work through the Spirit. Believe the promise of the Spirit and the powerful activity of the Spirit. And bring your habits and addictions and struggles to the table of this doctrine that He will set you free from these things. And some of our addictions we don't think of as as addictions. If you kind of flip them, you see it that, you know, a lot of us are addicted to prayerlessness, for instance. You almost have to call it an addiction because we hardly ever pray. Or some of you are addicted to not reading the Bible, I guess you'd call it, because you hardly ever do. You think, yeah, that's, that's an addiction. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a slump there, yes. I'm bound up in that. I, I, I hardly ever pray. I hardly ever read the Word. Just to name a couple of things. But you may be bringing lust to the table, jealousy, envy, anger, fear. But coming and and bringing those specifically to a passage like this to say, Lord, you said the, the principle of the spirit of life has set me free from this principle. And, and, and sometimes you even get emotional and passionate with God and you say with the psalmist, how long? When will this end? Lord! You've promised. You've accomplished it through Christ. Why is it going on in my life? That's okay. That's good. It's good to get honest with God like that. It's good to bring your experience to the promise and say, Lord, these have to fit. 
I have to, and I don't see them fitting right now. Lord, bring about the goodness of your word in my life, the promise, the accomplishment of Christ. I don't know how many times I've prayed, for instance, the uh, prayer of Titus 2, uh, or turned into prayer, Titus 2, where it says that he died for us that we should no longer uh, be under lawlessness, but that we should be uh, his possession, zealous for good deeds. Have you ever felt like you're not zealous for good deeds? Ever? A lot? Well, there's a, there's a verse that says, He died in order to set me free from my lawlessness, which means a lack of love, my anti-love life, so that I would have a zeal for good. Well, let's bring that to the table in prayer, right? Let's not be satisfied with anything less. Let's struggle with God. Let's argue with God. Let's... In, in the best sense of the word, like with uh, Jacob, I will not let you go till you bless me. Especially based on the accomplishment, not just promise. It is promise, but the accomplishment of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, let's, in a sense, not let our God rest, this God who has acted so gloriously for us and promised such wonderful things for us said that things can never be the same. Well, they can't. They just can't. It can't be the same. Well, we've seen the, uh, the foundation of the transformation is the work of Christ. The agent of the transformation is the Holy Spirit brought into our life. And then the standard of the transformation is mentioned in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, some have wanted... Have misinterpreted this passage, I think, by saying that all that verse 3 is talking about is God condemning sin and condemning sin and its guilt so that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled on our behalf by Christ. See, so that Christ would be condemned in our place, and so the law is fulfilled in Christ. He, he has paid the requirement of the law in his punishment. But notice, it does not say that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us or in our behalf, but in us. It's a key phrase, that it would be in us. And then the next phrase, who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's not talking about justification or he's not talking about forgiveness so much here. He's talking about release from sinfulness. He's saying that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled. How is it fulfilled? Now we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And then the whole context of Romans 6 and 7, as some of, many of you have been here for these, the whole context is about obedience, our new obedience in Christ, and the struggle we have apart from the Spirit and apart from Christ with the law of God. So the whole point here is that God brings about in our lives a growing conformity to His will, to His, to His Word. And so, as John Stott has put it, holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. Holiness is the ultimate purpose... Because he says he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned 
sin in the flesh. So the whole object of this incarnation, the whole object of, of his death, because verse 4 says, in order that. It's not that it was a surprise or an accident that the law would be fulfilled in us. That was God's purpose in sending his son in the first place, which should be an encouragement to us that, wait a minute, the end in view was not just my forgiveness, but the end in view of this incredible accomplishment of entering into our flesh and dying for us was so that we would become more and more conformed to his will. That's what he came to do. Do you think he, will, he won't do it? Do you think he won't fulfill what he came to do, that he won't accomplish that in his people's lives? If that is what he came to do, in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll be perfect again, but it means that obedience is necessary and it is possible. Okay? It is necessary because that's what Christ came to do, and it is possible. It is a reality in the lives of God's people. So the moral law is not abolished for us. It's actually fulfilled in us by the grace of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, this may sound odd because you can go to Galatians 5.18 and you'll read this. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying I'm not under the law, but now you're saying the law is fulfilled in me. Well, under the law means outside of Christ, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. Being under the law means I'm condemned by that law, and especially I'm condemned to a constant life in which I will never be able to obey that law from the heart. It will only point out my sin. It will only increase my condemnation. It will finally end me in death. Outside of faith, outside of the life-giving power of the Spirit, I would, I'm under the law. So, that's, that's the difference in a life set on the flesh and a life set on the Spirit. Later in verse 7, look, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot do it. But that is not true of the person who is taken over by the Holy Spirit. Apart from Him, we are under the law and hostile to God. But by His Spirit, we submit to God's law and it is fulfilled in us. Now, a question that may come up too is, what is this requirement of the law? Does this mean then that I'm enabled to be circumcised, to do the dietary laws, to you know, to do the sacrifices, uh, to keep the Sabbath as they did in the Old Testament. Is that what this is about? Well, back up, if you will, to Romans chapter 2 and look at a, a, where this phrase is used in chapter 2, verse 26. It's specifically talking about Gentile obedience here. And so for Paul... It is apart from the Jewish particulars, you might say. He says, if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, it's the same word as just requirement of the law that we have here, the righteous requirement of the law. But notice, he's uncircumcised and he's keeping the precepts of the law. Okay, So it can't be talking about those outward things. can't be talking about dietary laws and the like. 
There's something else involved. It's, it's keeping the heart of the law. It's keeping the fundamental direction of the law. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 13. We're staying in the same book. He says in verse 8 of chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he names the commandments. And he says in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And he's commending love because... It is a keeping of the law. It's not that the law is ended and now all we have is love. He's saying, don't owe anything to anyone except to love because if you do that, then you'll walk according to the law. You'll fulfill the meaning and the the essence of what the law is about. The central direction and heart of the law. And Jesus said this. He summarized the law in loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul says it again in Galatians 5. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in Matthew 5 talks about the law and how it can't be obeyed outwardly. You can't just say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. He says, what about anger? You can't say, well, I've just not committed physical adultery. What about lust? So Jesus shows that the law in the way you're supposed to love people gets inside of you. And that it's not just outward things, but it's how we feel toward people, how we think about people. That we're to care for people inside and out, and it's to be sincere and real, our love for one another. That's the kind of thing Paul is saying. That real love can be born in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. A sincerity of love to God, a sincerity of love to one another. And that's why after talking in Ephesians 4 of saying, put off your old self and put on the new self made in the likeness of God, he goes on to say, don't lie, don't steal, don't harm each other, don't give into sexual relationships outside of marriage. You see, the law is just, those parts of the law are just how you love each other. How we love, how we continue to care for each other. And so when he says that the law would be fulfilled in us, that's one of the, has to be one of the primary things Paul is thinking about. So you see, 1 Corinthians 13, we think of something that's far different from the law, but 1 Corinthians 13, the canticle of love, is really an intensification or an opening up of the real meaning of the will of God, the commands of God. This is what it's about. This is, this is the heart of it all. And so here's, there's continuity between what he says here and what we see promised in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, 33, where he says, I will put my law in your heart. What law? The law, Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. He says, I'll make that a reality within you. And a parallel to that is Ezekiel 36 where he says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. Those are synonyms basically. I'll put my law within you so that you'll obey it from the inside out. I'll put my spirit in you to cause you to walk in my ways. Or here, he so worked through the Holy Spirit as we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh that we fulfill this righteous requirement 
of the law. And so, as he says that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, it's obvious that what the law ultimately pointed to was that it that the Spirit must make us alive and bring us to it. Listen to this as a final warning and, and something that hopefully can bring some application to your heart. I think this requirement of the Spirit was written into the very flesh of, of the Israelites. It was circumcision. Circumcision proclaimed to them that you had to have a renewal of heart. That's why several times God says you must circumcise your heart and not your flesh. Always there's this message. Even earlier in Romans 2, what did he say? A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Okay? And so here's a fulfillment of that work. That the, this, this circumcision of heart... The renewal by the Spirit has been brought about through the work of Jesus Christ and His pouring His Spirit out. But listen to what Stephen said to the Jews. In the, in the face of having the very sign of needing a new heart, okay, which still proclaims that need to us, he says as he was just about to be stoned, this was at the end of his sermon, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Wow. Uncircumcised of heart and ears. You won't hear the Word. You won't hear God's gracious mercy. You won't submit yourself to Him. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit, the sign of which is in your flesh. The work of the Spirit that is so needed. And to be uncircumcised of heart or ears means, of course, that I refuse, I refuse the word altogether. And so this holiness, brothers and sisters, this change, this transformation is available to anyone who will trust in him. Anyone who will trust in him. Let me leave you with this promise that you've heard me say many times, but perhaps in this context it will have some freshness to you. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This last day of the feast, water is poured out. uh, And Jesus points to that water, basically. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, this he said about the Spirit and those who believed in Him were to receive. Rivers of living water for anyone who believes, anyone, any one of you, in whatever condition you are in your sin, to come to Christ for forgiveness, to come to Christ and say, Oh, Holy Spirit, reveal the love of God to me. Oh, Holy Spirit, progressively release me from my sins. Set me free. For that is the promise. That is the accomplishment of Christ for His people. Let us believe Him and walk in it. Let us pray. O Lord, for us, may things never be the same. They can never be the same for anyone who trusts in Christ. They simply cannot. For the Spirit, the, the law, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. 
from the law of sin and death. Because, Father, you have sent your Son and you have condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Oh, Lord, this will take hold. It will mark. It will define the lives of your people who trust in you. It must, O Lord. We pray, each of us, that you will manifest it more and more in our lives. The accomplishment of your salvation, exhibiting its beauty, its glory, its power, its freedom in our lives, in very personal ways, in the very particular ways that we struggle, O Lord. May we walk in new obedience, in new expectation, in new faith, in new vigor, new strength by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away